Amen. Good morning. Hey, good to see you this morning. My name is Alan Ramsey. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Fellowship Church. And it is a privilege and an honor to be with you this morning. It is our one, you know, annual time that we do this where we get together as a student ministry staff and we kind of come together and we um, work with our worship planning me- uh, team and we uh, are able to lead in this service. And so it is an honor to be with you. Um, again, uh, Alan Ramsey, if you don't know, been known as Alan Chuck for some of you, which is great. It's not my middle name, but it's what I'm known for. Um, 13 years I've been the middle school pastor here at Fellowship Church, and it has truly been a, a blessing to be here. My wife, Diane, and I um, have loved being here. We have three beautiful girls, and we just welcomed our first boy into our family three weeks ago. So very excited about that. Yes. For some of you um, who've known me a little bit, known our story a couple years back, we started a process of uh, adoption from the country of Liberia, and we are still in that process. It has been a two and a half year journey for us, and Rustin was our newest member that came to our um, family three weeks ago, and that was a surprise, uh, not in God's deal, but in our minds it was a surprise. And so people have said, well, then are you still adopting? And my question is, well, yeah, of course, because God told us to adopt. So it's not even an option. Again, obedience is kind of part of the deal. And so we may uh, be chaotic and um, it may be chaos. I had a, a great family here in this church who have um, five, six kids that said, hey, welcome to the club of chaos from here on out. So I'm very excited about that. Thanks for letting us be a part of this morning um, with you. Uh, what I wanted to start out this morning and say is, have you noticed um, before that Pastor Rick, our, our pastor, uses this platform often to share his personal stories about his infatuation of cars and the one that he really wants to get rid of? Um, and so we're going to take a look at his car. Look at that. That's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. I don't know why. It always keeps, keeps coming up in our stories, but I love that. But I've also noticed that um, I don't feel sorry for him, and I want, I want you to see um, my car, and I, I've been titled this. Often people meet with me, but uh, I am known as the guy who drives Little Red, okay? And Little Red is my car. He's been with me uh, 13. She has been with me, sorry. She has been with me for 13 plus years in youth ministry, lots of great stories with, with Little Red. And so people, it's funny, when I meet people outside of this place and then they remember me a little bit, it's not because of what I do, it's because, hey, you're, uh, you're the guy that drives Little Red, aren't you? And I'm like, yes, I am. Yes, I am. The controller of Little Red. So that is, that is it. Also, just to clarify, um, I've been on staff, like I said, 13 years, and our high school pa- pastor, Adam Vaughn, has been with us for five years. And uh, often people will get us confused. They'll call me Adam and call him Alan. And so I just want to set the record straight. We often look like twins, I think. So I just want you to see, see that. Um, that, is, that is a great representation of who we are. Um, and so I think I look more like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, and then I think he looks more like Danny DeVito. So, uh, but I don't know if that's the true, the true deal. But that's just to help you guys understand who we are and the difference because we often get confused. So we do look like twins. Um, so in the time remaining this morning that we have together, uh, I wanted to take this time to, to, to help paint a picture um, of how God is using 
our student ministries here at Fellowship Church to advance the kingdom of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to see how on point we must be about what it means to make disciples and to be disciple makers. It's really important. And to help you see just how important it is that we know this, I want to take you back to a real recent time in our nation's history that I think has really changed us and and has been a a picture of our country. It's August 29th, 2005. Hurricane Katrina hit the Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama coast. And uh, Hurricane Katrina was one of the most destructive, was the most destructive hurricane ever to strike the U.S., Although Katrina will be recorded as the most destructive storm in terms of economic loss, it did not exceed the human losses in storms such as the Galveston hurricane in 1900. And it's exciting this morning to have a neighbor of mine this morning with us who is from Louisiana who had to move up here because of Hurricane Katrina. And so I'm just very thankful that she is here with us today. But it's because of a clear purpose and execution 24,000 people are still alive today. More than 12,000 people were rescued by air support and 11,600 were evacuated on ground. Almost 9,500 hospital patients were delivered to safety. And it was during the days following Hurricane Katrina, more than 300 U.S. Coast Guard men and women from more than 20 different Coast Guard units across the country came to the Gulf Coast. Flight and ground crews worked tirelessly to support the aircrafts. The crews courageously persevered through dehydration, dangerous predicaments, and long days of work with little or no rest. Human lives were saved because of the Coast Guard's commitment to uniting personnel around the smallest details and the crew's willingness to put others before themselves reflected their common mission and purpose. It was this. It was this simple. Rescue people and save lives. And it appears the success of the U.S. Coast Guard was because of their ability to be on point and to complete their mission. Now, let me take you And help you tie this story back into how God is using our ministry to be on point with the gospel. Many people would argue America is entering a post-Christian era. This is a time now when Christianity is no longer the majority worldview. I believe the post-Christian era we now live in is consuming our students and our families with hurricane force winds. It is sweeping across the youth culture in epidemic proportions. You see, times are changing. The new millennium is bringing fresh and unique challenges in all aspects of life. Now, the simple youth pastor that I am, I term this as the Oprah Perry era. You're saying, what is that? Oprah Winfrey, who's on the later side um, of, of the generations here. And then you've got Katy Perry, pop sensation star. So you've got these two philosophies coming together and creating a culture that is, is just ridiculous. For those, 
For those of you know, that know anything, if you don't, parents in particular, listen to Star 102.1 and listen to the songs. Listen to what your kids are being taught. Katy Perry happens to be from our tradition and came and grew up in a Christian home. Her dad's a Pentecostal preacher. She tried to come into the Christian music industry in 2001 and her album bombed. But now, using a little bit of sex, actually a lot, and a few other things, she is one of the top grossing female artists in the industry. And it's shaping our kids' lives. And then you take Oprah and her ability to take anything and make it gold. And it's a hodgepodge of religious experience and thought packaged all in one neat little thing to meet all your needs. It is what I call the new American way. It seems to me as we work with students and we're ministering with students that in a very fast-paced, hectic, hurried, yet technically savvy and globally connected world, students today at times seem more isolated, have fewer close friends, and are moving away from activities with real personal interaction. Even with the creation of Facebook, MySpace, you've got texting today, students seem to have a relational void in their lives. I believe, I truly believe this. I believe that right now, this is the perfect storm. And it's exactly the right time to engage this world with the transforming message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially in regards to the students of our church, this community, and the world. We are seeing a new generation of students that are learning what it means to follow Christ according to the Holy Scriptures through being connected in relationships with other believers. This is happening here in our student ministry because of our purpose, our church's purpose. We're going to put it on here again. I want you to see this. Our purpose is to glorify God by pursuing the Christ life and engaging the world. You hear this often because this is what our mission is about. We are becoming increasingly more focused on that purpose. And we're evaluating everything we are doing through this lens. It's this purpose right here. As we are growing as a church and as a student ministry, we strive to be healthy, which means we have an intentional smallness factor. We desire to help create environments for discipleship to happen through the context of relationships. Our small group ministry to students is a long-term solution to the bigness students feel in our culture. This simply is about relationships with adults, believers as Christians, and with other students that is centered around the gospel in a world of isolation, confusion, and hopelessness. This year, our high school ministry has 34 small group leaders and 140 students. And our middle school ministry has 26 small group leaders and 110 students who have committed to discipleship on and off this campus each week. And in this season to engage, Fellowship Church has intentionally committed to discipling the next generation for the sake of the gospel. We would like you now to hear from, our, from students and some from, from our volunteers and the leaders of this ministry and about why they are involved and why they have engaged more deeply. So if you will watch with me now.
See, the story of Jesus' death and his resurrection has been the cornerstone of the church for more than 2,000 years. And the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has been the source of hope for countless of millions of people. No other person in history has had greater transformational effect on humanity other than Jesus Christ. This is why the story of Jesus' life has come to be known as the gospel. The gospel means good news. It is good news for a world that is desperately searching for something to believe in. And this generation wants to, this new generation wants to be a part of something much bigger than themselves. It's good news for those who are hurting and without hope. The reason why I'm standing here today with you is because of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was confronted with the truth of this gospel at the age of the age of 11. And after having watched my father, my dad, surrender his life to Christ, it radically changed our family. And it wasn't long after that that I gave my life to Jesus Christ. You see, the decision to follow Christ was not difficult, especially after watching Christ redeem and transform my dad and my parents' marriage and my family. You see, the trajectory of my life has changed because of this decision. My dad sat us down about 10 years ago, my brother and I, and he said, listen, I cannot give you anything. I cannot leave you anything. Financially, I'm done. I don't have anything to give you. But what I have that I give you is a legacy of faith in Christ and a legacy of marriage. That is it. That's powerful. That is powerful. That is the transformation and the power of the gospel. I remember in the youth group that I grew up in, the youth pastors would say this, especially this one, the decisions you make today will ultimately determine your future. And he was right. And I am so blessed because of God's faithfulness and as I've chosen to follow Jesus Christ. Growing up in Southern California, it was a blessing because it was always nice and warm. Loved it. Loved it. But I also thought it was a blessing too because I was confronted with the truth at a young age and quickly in my faith had to decide what kind of disciple I was going to be. You see, I love living in Knoxville, Tennessee. But up until recently, we have been a little bit insulated to the real post-Christian culture. And having grown up on the West Coast, there was no Bible Belt. It was, you are a Christian or you are not. You are either a disciple of Jesus or you are not. So this morning, we're going to take a look at a text for a few minutes. So if you have your Bibles, we can turn to John chapter 6. And as you get your Bibles out, we're going to do something that we do in middle school. When we teach God's Word, it is a declaration about the power of God's Word and how it transforms. So I need you to do something a little bit hokey, a little bit crazy with me. Students, help me out here. you got to raise your Bible, all right, and repeat after me. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can have what it says I can have. 
I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God, and I will never be the same again. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now I know you're saying that's a little Joel Osteen-ish. Okay, so hang with me. We tweaked it. It's about the gospel. It's about the power of God. And it's a declaration and a prayer that God's word is alive and it is active and it is working in our lives. All right, yes, thank you for an amen. John chapter 6, verse 60. John chapter 6. In the Gospel of John here. All right, and if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. When many, oh wait, before we, we, before we do that, I gotta give you a, sorry, gotta give you a little background here to help you understand this. The context right before this, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sorry about that, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will, be thirst, will never be thirsty. He also went on to say that whoever who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and that he will raise him up on the last day. So in this passage before we're getting ready to read, he concludes with this, for my flesh is true food and my blood true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He is saying here, and of course, I want you to understand, he's not talking about cannibalism in this literal sense, but it's an image of eating and drinking, which is one of consuming. It is one of receiving. And so when we think about the Lord's Supper, our communion, we have an idea, an image here of consuming. It is a picture of what it means for us to receive his life by feeding on him. He is the word in flesh and drawing our life to him. Again, going back to our purpose, pursuing the Christ life. So in this passage we are going to read, we see how the crowds responded to this bread of life message that Jesus delivered. Remember, we're dealing with many people who followed Jesus for quite some time. These people had been enthusiastic about his teaching in the past. They heard teaching like the Sermon on the Mount, and they had come hungering and thirsting for more. Then they heard Jesus telling them how helpless they were to come to the Father. It wasn't about anything that they could do, i.e. works, trying to make, get your way to heaven, but about the work of the Father in our lives. So with that being said, let's read John chapter 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So as we look at, in today's society, in our culture, and as we look at what we're about at Fellowship Church, and we're talking about discipleship, following Christ, pursuing the Christ life here, I want to ask you to evaluate your own discipleship. What type of disciple are you? And in this text, we see a picture of three types of disciples. The first one you see is casual disciples. You see in these first six verses of this, they were challenged, they were offended, and they were called on the carpet about what it means to follow and what it means to be in relationship. Notice that all the people who were left or who left were considered, they were considered disciples. They followed Jesus, but when things didn't go the way they expected, they left, they took off. But the 11 of the 12 remained faithful. Second type of disciple is the committed disciple. We see in verses um, 67 to 69 here. Jesus turns to his 12 disciples that he specifically chose and gave them one more out, one more opportunity to get out after more hard facts about what he is asking them to do. And of course, I love this. Peter responds first and says, there is no one else to go who has the words of eternal life. They have believed, the disciples have believed and come to know that he is the Holy One of God. This again is about relationship with God not religious duty. It is about a relationship with the Father. But he's asking hard things. And the last type of disciple in this is the counterfeit disciple. Obviously, this situation with Judas was all part of the bigger picture of God's plan in eternity. But Satan, the supreme adversary of God, used Judas as his tool in opposing the work of God. And so my question to you is, are you really obeying or are you just counterfeit? Are you putting on a good, socially acceptable act or is it just not real? Are you walking the walk and talking the talk? We all need to take a hard look at what it means to follow Christ and the kind of disciple we are. Now, in posing these questions, those are, kind of, those are some seriously hard questions to think about. And in posing these, if you are a person who is new to church, to this church in particular, or visiting or checking it out, um, it's not aimed directly at you. This is not about you in this. This is meant as a challenge for those who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. However, these words that I am speaking about Jesus, they are the real deal when it comes to the gospel and the good news of being saved from your sins and finding eternal life and finding hope and finding peace and finding joy in the midst of a very turbulent and tough life and world that we live in. You see, 
Jesus Christ is the risen Savior of the post-Christian era. We are not offering the new generations the sayings of a long-deceased and controversial religious teacher. We are offering students the risen King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ alone has the power to save us from our sins. He alone has the power to transform people's lives. This is the gospel. And this gospel is relevant and it's necessary today for a new generation as it's ever been. Can I have an amen? Amen. It is for today. This is a wake-up call for us. And so in closing this morning, again, reminder, times are changing. And if you haven't figured that now, it's time to wake up. The times have changed. While those who have come before us in the church provide immeasurable wisdom, we also need to be willing to step out and take risks to advance the kingdom of God. We have to wrestle with lots of questions. And we're doing that in our student ministries and in our church. But it has to be done for the sake of the gospel, with the gospel, and nothing else. And if our student ministries here at Fellowship Church is going to complete its mission and effectively engage students with the gospel of Christ, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. We have to be growing disciples. We cannot be counterfeit. We have to be the real deal, committed to the gospel. We are on a journey in this season to engage. And it's evident that God is with us. I am so excited to see what God does in and through us as we dream about what it looks like to reach a world of students and families not yet seen, and become student ministries not yet imagined. Thanks for allowing me the time to share that message. And as we conclude this morning, I'm going to ask our lead pastor, Rick Dunn, to come up and share a few minutes with you. So would you give him a round of applause as he comes up? I guess we're standing. All right. So here it is. So it's been, um, I was thinking about this. I was going to ask you these couple questions. It's been 20 plus years. And plus, yeah. Since you've been a youth pastor. Yeah. yeah. It really, it's, it's been a while. Yeah. Okay, just to let you know about. Thank you for how, sharing that out. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been thinking about that um, a lot. And, and just for you to know, when, uh, when Rick was a youth pastor, they used visuals like what's called a flannel board. Have you seen this? <laughs> um, and uh, as he was leaving his youth ministry days, they came out with the overhead projector. <laughs> so, uh, so this is how long it's been. So I, I just enjoy yeah, I mean, saying that. Um, Since most of these people were born after I was a youth pastor, that's probably true. So, <laughs> so in, in all of that, um, I just want to say thank you, Pastor Rick, for your uh, unwavering commitment and passion about the gospel to the next generation and about supporting what we do as as uh, volunteers and staff in this church, as we minister to students, you and the elders have set uh, an incredible example of what it means to really care deeply about the gospel in the next generation. And as I talk to youth pastors around the country, they would die for something like this. To be in a body in a church that truly supports and values students 
And so I just want to thank you for that on behalf of our student ministry staff. Thank you for your commitment to that. Um, it really is a privilege. And so the question that I have in, in all of this is with what I've just shared, uh, what, what do you see um, and how do you see with our culture the gap between our culture and the post-Christian era yeah. and the gospel? What do you see? What does that look like? How do you yeah. see that unfold? Um, well, first of all, let's, let's talk about the dark ages of youth ministry, all right? So let's go back a, a years, all the way back to the 80s, if you can believe that. So um, I used to, I was a youth pastor, and then I spent a dozen years in a Christian university training youth pastors. And uh, there's two texts I used to point them to. They're both sociologists. One is David Elkind, who wrote a book called The Hurried Child in the late 70s, The Hurried Child. And the other was by a Christian sociologist, Quentin Schultz at Calvin College, who wrote a book called Dancing in the Dark. And both of them predicted the world you're describing. They both said, it's, the Elkind said, the loss of relationship, fear, hopelessness, disconnect, it's all coming. Quentin, Quentin Schultz, in looking at pop culture and the church, said the church is helping it happen. So I try to think of, of a picture and a model or a way to, to give this imagery. And I, I finished my notes last night and I was praying, I said, Lord, I've got to have, give me some kind of image because I can only remember things I can see. And uh, I've got this overhead. No, i So I'm going to show you up on the screen a picture. This is from New Orleans. So last night I'm praying, and the Lord said, use Katrina. Now, I want you to know, Al and I talked this week about kind of the contents message, the things I was going to share up here. We never mentioned how we were going to illustrate it. So you may not want to listen to what Alan has to say or what I have to say, but I would listen to the Spirit of God this one, all right? Because didn't, we didn't talk about this. Uh, my in-laws used to live in New Orleans. I've been in New Orleans when it really rained. I've seen New Orleans after a hurricane. This didn't happen. You know why this happened? The levee broke. The hurricane had always been there, but when the levee broke. And if you will read David Elkine in the 1970s and Quentin Schultz in the 1980s, what they're saying is Elkine is saying the adult community who's supposed to provide maturity and leadership and relationship for the next generation has abandoned their post in order to consume and to chase and to have and to be busy and sex, power, and money and all those things. And Quentin Schultz in the 80s says, and oh, by the way, the church is helping this happen. Mm-hmm. An abandonment of the gospel and the truth and relationships. Mm-hmm. And so we do have a deluge. We have a, a culture, a generation that's being brought up where there's a loss of objective truth, mm-hmm. which leads to the loss of a moral compass which then leads to the loss of confidence in what is real and what is true, which then leaves them unprotected and to a loss of innocence, which in the loss of innocence is a loss of strength. And when you lose your strength, you lose maturity. And when you lose maturity, you lose vision. And the scriptures tell us when there's no vision, the people perish, and so they lose hope. And that's the culture in which we live in. So with that, what do we do? How do we make this work with, with yeah. this gap and the reality? Well, here's the beauty of it. And you just, you just nailed it. You said it better than I'll say it. But here's the beauty of it. A truthless culture is a ruthless culture. And we saw it after Katrina. A truthless culture is a ruthless culture. It leaves people abandoned, fending for themselves. It kind of looks like this. This is a picture from Katrina. That would be a good way to think about what it's like to be a student out there who doesn't have an adult, mature adult, follower of Christ in their lives. It's kind of like being on the roof, the water's rising, can somebody help? See, we 
look at all the, like the statistics. We know if you're 25 years old and you're in here today, you're a 25-year-old single and you're still a virgin, you, you're 8% of the population. 92% of all 25-year-olds are already sexually active if they're single. We know that if you're not completely bought into consumption and debt, you're, you're going to stand out. We know that if you have any trust in anything of authority, you're, you're... So that's the culture. It's on the rooftop looking for help. It's a ruthless... It's a truthless culture that creates ruthless relationships, which creates a graceless culture. And then here we are, right? Here we are, John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so what we do is we, as Jesus, full of His grace and truth, not ours, because I'm not full of grace and truth, but He in me is full of grace and truth, we go there. And here's our last picture, and you talked about it earlier, and I didn't even know you were going to talk about this. If you, can, if you can look at that picture and imagine the generation the next generation in Knoxville, Tennessee on that rooftop. And if you'll see, it's not throwing them ladders to climb down. It's going where they are, and it's going on a rescue mission of grace and truth. And here's the beauty about this generation, Alan, that you know, is in this generation of students, if you go and enter into their world, and they come to know Jesus, and you pull them out, and they get to see a a different way of living, they want to go back in and rescue somebody else. They don't want to be churched to death. They don't want to be programmed to death. And what Quentin Schultz said in the 80s, quite honestly, if y'all can bear the truth, he said the church has abandoned its place as, quote, the levy, what I call the levy, and the lack of adult, mature adult spiritual men and women who will enter into kids' lives and so it's so lacking that we'll pay people to go do it for us and think we're doing youth ministry. In fact, what you're modeling is it takes all of us. It's the church. Not everybody's called to be a youth leader or a worker, but everybody's called to be a part of a church that makes sure it's not up to the paid people, it's up to us to invest in our kids. And that's why whether I'm parenting, whether I'm coaching, whether I'm leading this church, I always have on my mind, how do we get to them? And once we get to them, we need to understand it's not just a matter of standing in front of them and telling them that this would be a good idea and here's some principles to live by. You got to, as Carla was talking about, as Meredith was talking about, as Evan were talking about on the video, you got to get close enough in life to start talking about, well, how do you do that? And what are the skills? And how do you make that kind of decision? And what about when you blow it? And what about when your friend is like this? Because we're asking our kids to live in a post Christian Oprah Perry world that's getting more and more Perry than it is Oprah, right? <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely. the reality. And so what we're asking our kids to do is to take risk. And if we can't take the risk to come into their world as adults, then we, have, we do not have the integrity or credibility to ask them to take the risk to live in the world they live in. So we got to go, and we got to find a way. I do it through coaching. You do it through building teams of leaders. We do it as a church by creating an environment that says, we're not just here for ourselves as adults, and we're going to stand up and be the mature adults that kids need to get off the roof and into the rescue mission with us. That's how we do it. That's it. That's it. Thank you for that. Yeah. That's really good. Um, would you be willing to pray for us as we close our service out? I'd be glad. I, would, I would hope that we as a church, Alan, would see ourselves as the people who are going to rebuild the levee in Knoxville. We're going to rebuild the levee. That's, that's all we've been given. We haven't been given America. We've been given Knoxville.
we're going to start building the levy. So to do that, here's, here's the people who are going to be the heavy lifters in the levy building. It's going to be the students who are here, our 12 to 18-year-old students who are in the room. We've got several of them here today. It's going to be parents. It's going to be the people who coach them, teach them in the schools, uh, their Boy Scout leaders, their Girl Scout leaders, their uh, whatever. The, it's, it's the place where you have direct contact. So if you're 12 to 18 years old or you're an adult who's one of those people I described, you have that kind of contact. Would you please stand? You might be a small group leader. Just go ahead and stand. All the 12 to 18-year-olds and all those who coach them, teach them, lead their small groups, parent them. If you're a parent of a, of a middle school, high school, college student who's volunteering, which, by the way, Fellowship Church would not exist were it not for the college students who invest their lives in our kids. It's just amazing what they do, just amazing. And we're going to pray for you because you're the heavy lifters on this levee building. You're the heavy lifters. And I'll tell you what, I'm finding out there's a bunch of us, not just in this church, all through Knoxville. And if we just become committed to the mission, see the whole city changed. So if you're not one of those people standing, just put a hand on those folks. If you can reach them, let's pray for them. Lord, first we pray for our students. We thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ can shine lighter and brighter and stronger than it could in my generation because they have the opportunity now to stand in the midst of a darkened world, dancing in the dark, and live the life and the light of Jesus Christ, not in a way that is obnoxious, but not in a way that's not going to be offensive sometimes either. Mm -hmm. It's the truth and it's grace. And so we pray for our students. You would strengthen their hearts. You would strengthen their resolve, strengthen their sense of mission in their schools, their neighborhoods, their communities, their sports teams, their church. Lord, I pray for those uh, young adults, those college students, those teachers, those folks in the room, these under 35s who've invested so deeply in students here in this church and this community. Would you give them favor and blessing? Would you help them rebuild a levy? Would you build in them hope and maturity and strength and confidence and a moral compass that will not waver and, and repentance and, and, and restoration when they fail and they sin so that they might demonstrate to the world there is a truth greater than ourselves and a hope greater than ourselves and restore vision. And then for my generation, Lord, for my generation, I repent on behalf of the way in which we let the levy break because we were so busy chasing stuff and status and success. Forgive us, Lord, for being so self-absorbed in the church that we let the levy break in so many ways. And may the gospel restore to our hearts a vision for how we can help the next generation build strong. Lord, I pray that you'll be with parents. We don't, we don't know what we're doing. I don't, half the time. I'm just doing my best to try to understand what Jesus in me can do for my kids. Would you give us grace and favor and blessing? Would you give our leaders and our, our pastors, Alan and, and his whole team, just give them grace and favor and strength? And God, we know it's in your heart to be on point with this mission. We know how easily we are distracted. We know how easily we give up. We know how, how we've, not, we, we've seen a culture deteriorate so much we almost give in to it as if there's nothing left to do. And yet, we have the power of the gospel pulsing through our souls and our being. Would you awaken us to this power and cause us to live in it? It's the power that causes adults to say to kids, I love Jesus and you enough to spend time with you, helping you know him. Lord, would you cause us to be that people for your glory and for your namesake? 
Amen.